Flyers Daily with Jason Mertides. All right, here we go. It's a brand new Flyers Daily for Thursday, the 27th of October. Flyers finally back in action tonight. Just a couple of days off, but it feels like an eternity. You get into that rhythm of four games in six days and back-to-backs and every other day. I mean, there's a couple days in between. It feels a little off-kilter, but they're back at it tonight. Looks like they might get some bodies back if uh, Owen Tippett clears protocol. He'll be back in the lineup. Looks like Rasmus Ristolainen will be back in the lineup as well. And the Flyers will take on the Florida Panthers. Panthers right now sitting in the second spot in the Atlantic Division of the Eastern Conference with a 4-2-1 record through seven games. Nine points on the season. Three back of the Boston Bruins who lead the division 6-1-0. Also in seven games, they've got 12 points. Flyers come in third spot in the Metropolitan Division with eight points. One point back of the Hurricanes who have played six games with a record of 4-1-1, nine points. And the Penguins through seven games, 4-2-1, also nine points. Flyers with a record of 4-2-0, eight points. Caps one more game played and 4-3, and also eight points. Devils with eight points. And the New York Rangers also with eight points. Devils, Caps, and Rangers have all played one more game than the Flyers. So we come in tonight, Florida. We already saw Florida this year. That was the second half of that first back-to-back in Tampa on Tuesday of last week, and then Florida on Wednesday. And leading the Florida Panthers right now in points is Matthew Kachuk. Of course, he was the big trade acquisition. Well, I guess, yeah, I guess it's a trade because Calgary signed him and then traded him. And he in seven games this season, four goals, five assists, and nine points. Colin White also with six points on the season, two goals, and four assists. This is a team in Florida. A lot of changes in the offseason. Two good goaltenders. Sergei Bobrovsky, we saw him in the first game. We'll see if we see him tonight. 285 goals against average and a 908 save percentage. And Spencer Knight, two games played this season, 2-0 record. And he has got a 2-5 goals against average and a 906 save percentage. So it'll be the Flyers and the Panthers tonight. And you think of the Florida Panthers, you think of them as one of those teams that's going to score a ton of goals. So far this season, they have not done that. You know, the Florida Panthers last year had a great power play, great offense, averaging three goals per game this season, which is 22nd in the league. And they're also averaging giving up exactly three goals per game, which is also in the middle of the pack, 17th in the NHL. They do, however, generate a good amount of shots, 34.9. So where does that put 34.9? Where does that put them in the NHL? How about 7th? And they only give up 29.6, which is fifth least in the NHL. The Devils still with the lowest number, 21.4, staggeringly low number, one or 4.4 shots per game on the second best team at shot suppression. Pretty amazing number. So Flyers-Panthers tonight, we'll recap that in tomorrow's episode. But our guest in this episode thought this was a good opportunity to talk to Alan Bass. Now, he's a writer and he wrote a book about Ed Snyder. It's a fascinating story. It tells the whole story, the good, the bad, and everything in between. How the Flyers came to Philadelphia, what the team meant to him, a lot about his business acumen, and the way he built the empire. So he joins us right now. Alan Bass joins us. And Alan, I love the title of the book because you use a word in it that I think describes Ed Snyder perfectly. Tell us the title of the book. It's called Ed Snyder, The Last Sports Mogul. And I appreciate you having me on, Jason. Uh, no problem. Um, you know, the word mogul is so interesting because there's a few guys in, in pro sports left that you would consider a mogul, whether that's, you know, a Jerry Jones in the NFL, 
um, some Robert Kraft, perhaps some big owners in the NBA. But the sports mogul is interesting because he really did more than just own the Flyers. He revolutionized a lot of areas of media and other areas. Absolutely. And that's one of the pieces of his life that I was so interested in as a businessman myself uh, was the fact that he was probably the last person you can point to that built his success and built his wealth through the ownership of a sports team. I mean, nowadays you have to be independently wealthy to even consider being an owner of a sports team. Whereas Ed mortgaged his whole life to start the Flyers uh, and then just grew it exponentially from there through uh, a lot of the ideas you're talking about, growing the business, not even just with the Flyers, but all of the businesses surrounding the Flyers with the Spectrum, uh, everything that became part of Comcast Spectacore, what we see today in a multi-billion dollar business. Ed laid the groundwork for all of that uh, and was years ahead of his time uh, in terms of getting these uh, multiple spokes of a wheel built uh, so that the entire organization can support itself as opposed to just relying on one aspect of it. And you see a lot yeah. of other NHL organizations and sports organizations built the same way nowadays. Yeah, it's 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 interesting. First, what, what led you into the project? You know, he's he's a, such an interesting man. He's not one of those. He wasn't a trust fund baby that just or like a dot com billionaire. That's not the way it happened, Fred Snyder. But what led you into this project? So I had always been fascinated with Ed. Uh, even from a young age, I was a Flyers fan growing up in the region, just like everybody in Philadelphia and the surrounding area. Uh, but whereas my friends were interested in meeting Eric Lindros or John LeClaire, I, I grew up in the 90s, uh, I was interested in Ed Snyder. You know, my family is full of business people. I'm, in a th I'm a third generation in a family business. And so I was always interested in that entrepreneurial side. Uh, you know, how did this organization get to where it was even when I was a kid in the 90s? And more so, how did it get to where it is today? So I was always interested in how the organization was built. Um, you know, a, 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 an extremely successful sports franchise doesn't just pop up. It takes years and years of work. Uh, and I wanted to know how Ed did that because he was at the forefront of this team for so many years. Uh, and from my perspective, I wanted to know for myself, but I also knew that Philadelphia was gonna be fascinated with this story because Ed Snyder was such a huge presence in the city and still is through his philanthropy and, you know, Snyder hockey, the, the incredible work that they continue to do to this day, you know, he was everywhere in Philadelphia. And I wanted to know how he got to that point. You know, what were the, what were the pieces of his personality? What were the business decisions he had to make the hard ones, the easy ones? Uh, why was it that he was able to succeed? Whereas other people in hockey or sports history were unable to do so, whether in Philadelphia or elsewhere. Uh, and so, you know, as I started writing, you know, as I got older, I, I published a couple books before this and I got a little bit more connected with the Snyder family and found out that nobody had really uh, explored this topic. Uh, and, and they were very thrilled to be a part of it. Uh, you know, Comcast graciously uh, offered their help in terms of going through archives with photos, making people available for interviews, those that knew Ed. Um, and, uh, you know, it kind of came together from there. You know, the interesting part of it, because this, he brings the team to Philadelphia in its first expansion from the original six to expand the league into 12 teams. I think that's a significant part of this. And while the NHL was a, a pro sports league, it's not a huge league. It's just six teams. And Philadelphia had to learn about the sport. Had, did you get 
any insight as to why he took this risk to bring this game to this city? So interestingly enough, the book I wrote before this one was titled uh, Professional Hockey in Philadelphia History. And it looked at every team uh, from the Quaker City Hockey Club in the 1890s all the way through the Phantoms and every pro hockey team that ever played in the city. So while Philadelphia didn't have incredible success with hockey before the Flyers, there was some level of interest in the game. Um, There were some teams that had seen some success, but most of the teams were just not good from a performance standpoint. And as you know, in Philadelphia, when a team is not good for a lengthy period of time, it's very difficult to get fans excited about it, understandably so. Um, What Ed saw was the passion of the fans. Uh, There's a story in the book uh, where he uh, he was in the record business uh, before he moved to Philadelphia in the 1960s. And he was with a friend in uh, Boston and they were going to a Celtics game and standing outside Boston Garden. And he saw people lined down the block at the ticket booth. And he said to his friends, "Who are, what are they lined up for? And they said, uh, oh, they're lined up for Bruins tickets. They release, you know, a, a few tickets uh, on the day of the game. And he said, aren't they in last place? He said, yeah. Yeah, they're in last place. And he he kind of stuck with him thinking, that's interesting. You know, a last place team, why are people lined around the block to watch a last place team? And that kind of stuck with him. And then he went to a hockey game in New York at Madison Square Garden. A few years later, a friend asked him if he wanted to go. And he was like, sure, why not? And he just fell in love with the flow of the game. He loved the fact that the players didn't wear helmets. They kind of looked like, you know, he he was fascinated by Gump Worsley, who kind of had that everyman look. Uh, he mm-hmm. didn't look like this chiseled pro athlete. He just looked like an average man off the street. And he he fell in love with the the game. But then from a business standpoint, he remembered thinking of that passion that Boston had for their last place team. And essentially, he was he was thinking, well, Philadelphia is a way better sports city than Boston. Why wouldn't that work here if we did it? Yeah. Um, and he joked uh, many years later that, you know, it's a good thing that there was no market research or anything like that done, because if if they had done that, he likely wouldn't have taken the risk. Um, but the loans then, wouldn't have been no approved <laughs> that, that too. And, uh, he just had an idea. He went into his business partner, Jerry Wolman, uh, and said, you know, if you build a spectrum, we can, we can bring this team in and, you know, long, long story short, the longer stories, of course, in the book, but long story short, they were able to get, uh, accepted by the NHL. They were able to scrape together the $2 million expansion fee. And, uh, that's history. You know, the thing is, too, is this wasn't some success story from the jump It, from a business standpoint. There there were pitfalls along the way, you know, from even very early on when the roof blew off the spectrum, right, to, you know, all different hurdles that you have to overcome. It's, success stories come with some some knockdowns, and he had his knockdowns along the way as well. Absolutely. And in fact, the best example of that is when the roof blew off, Uh, you know, before that they were, they were scraping together every penny they could. He took loans from friends. He basically went to every single banker he could possibly find in the city. And, you know, a few days before the money was due in Montreal, he was able to scrape together the last few hundred thousand dollars he needed to buy the team. Uh, In fact, the, the representatives from Baltimore's bid uh, who were the first runner up to Philadelphia, if, if somebody couldn't, pay the expansion fee they were waiting in the montreal hotel with their check expecting they were going to get the franchise because they had heard rumors that philadelphia was struggling to get the money ed was able to get it together uh and you know the first season was okay they you know they had some 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 good games attendance wise uh but like any team you're not going to make a profit your first year you're putting out so much money to get everything going and he knew it was going to take some time 
Um, but it's when the roof blew off the spectrum that the, for the first time you kind of see him down on himself and really almost hopeless because, you know, you can account for so many things. You can't account for the roof blowing off a building and, you know, he had insurance for the building, et cetera, but that, that wasn't the point. He was losing ticket revenue from the last uh, season games in the playoffs. Uh, it was a pain, a pain for him to fight with the city over this. And there's a scene in the book where uh, he really doesn't know what to do. He doesn't know how he's going to fix this because he is tapped out. He has no more credit available. He's taken two mortgages on his home. Uh, and essentially, he's saved by a benevolent banker. One of the bankers that gave him the loans for the expansion fee gives him a call and says, you know, what's going on? How are you going to handle this? And he was like, I don't know. I really don't know. I, I, I have no clue how to do how to do this. And the guy said, how much do you need? And he said, I probably need about a million dollars. And he said, all right, it'll be in your account tomorrow. Wow. And it's really just a benevolent banker who mostly wanted to protect his own loan. It, just, it wasn't Ed's fault that the roof blew up the spectrum. This wasn't yeah. a bad business decision. Um, and so uh, you, this benevolent banker at the last second comes in and kind of bails Ed out and gets him through the next year. Uh, and then, you know, once you get into the early 70s and Philly really starts to get behind the team, that's when you see the sellouts start to happen. You see the third deck added to the spectrum. You see lines around the block for season tickets. But those first few years were really tough. He had a really difficult time. You know, the one thing that he managed to do, even in those tough times in the, in the early part, was instill a sense of pride in the organization and the logo and everything that went with it. If you're going to be a part of this, you're going to have to, you know, carry yourself with the same pride and investment that I carry. And he surrounded himself with people like that, didn't he? Absolutely. He was... I mean, he was a businessman. He, he, he majored in business in college. He was a marketing guru. He understood the value of, for lack of a better term, brand recognition. He wanted to make sure that the Flyers emblem meant something and, and not only meant something to the fans, but meant something to the people that worked for the organization, that played for the organization. You know, there, there's such a fascination still with the teams of the 70s because they had such a good representation of Philadelphia, that blue collar city, just working hard every day and, and, and fighting for the, for each other and fighting for the city. Uh, you know, we see this with what's going on right now with the Phillies, anybody from outside the city that wants to take a shot at, at a team, at a city, this city just comes together and says, uh, uh, this is our, this is our town. You're not, you're not talking bad about us. And he loved that. He, he grew up, like that. And he grew up in Washington, DC, but he always had that attitude, you know, don't come at me. Don't come at the people I care for. You know, I'll show you. He, he, that, that's where the idea of the broad street bullies came from. He, he stick up for yourselves. It wasn't so much about fighting. Um, it was more about creating that culture where people support each other. They fight for one another. They fight for their teammates. They fight for their city. And he was, he, he was so involved in making that culture happen. Uh, and and making that Flyers emblem recognizable for that around the hockey world. Yeah, it was iconic. And, you know, what he managed to do as an expansion team as well, we know about the, the two cups and, you know, all the years of going to the finals, whether that's again in 76 where they lose to the Canadians who win four straight or going in 80 to the Islanders who win four straight, 85 and 87, where you have that great Edmonton teams that won multiple cups on that run and 97 as well. And, of course, 2010. Uh, I mean, all those teams that they faced when they got back to the cup were dynasties. Even the Blackhawks won three in five years and 10, 13 and 15. So, I mean, it's, it's unbelievable. But what he did was he made the Flyers a really important franchise to the league. 
because nobody seems to be ambivalent about the Flyers. You love them or you hate them. And there's a lot of people north of the border. They have a strong contingency of fans in Canada, factions that listen to this podcast. Like I see the heat maps of where all the downloads and listens come from. It's global when it comes to this team. How did that happen? How did he make this a global phenomenon in a lot of way? Well, I think that goes back to the same thing we were just talking about. Even people, well, for one, there's a lot of people that transplant out of Philadelphia elsewhere. So maybe they yeah. grew up as Flyers fans. But and they could identify with this for some reason. But but yeah, people, people, you know, there's so many cities in between the two countries, between the U.S. and Canada, that have that feeling, that underdog mentality, that everyone's mm-hmm. against this mentality. And people can identify with that with the Flyers organization from a long time ago. They they can identify that as an organization that represents, you know, we're fighting for the people that love us. We're fighting for the teammates. We're fighting for our staff. We're fighting for everybody in the stands. That's something that other cities can identify with. Maybe they don't like to identify with it when the Flyers are playing their team that they like. But if someone doesn't necessarily have a team, it's a great brand to associate with. You know, what more could you ask for than a team that works their butts off every night to fight for the city? Yeah, it became a, a club. You know, when you wear that shirt, T-shirt out in public, it was like, you're not going to mess with me because we got the <laughs> army behind us. And that's the thing. And and the thing about Ed Snyder is this, is I heard this a ton when I worked on the radio for 20 years, was he wanted to win as much as we did, the fans. Like, he, they felt his passion and drive. It wasn't just a business. It was fandom enveloped in ownership and he was as big of a fan of the flyers as anybody that sat in the spectrum or the wells fargo center or whatever you called it at different times absolutely in fact there's i mean the people that were at games in the 70s know this for sure but i I talk about it in the book is the times that ed would stand at the edge of his uh of the super box that what 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 a, a previously known what a suite was uh, he'd stand at the edge of a super box in the spectrum and he would Section scream R. and yell at the refs. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yep. And he would he would scream at the refs. There there was a time where he jumped mm-hmm. over the side, ran down and and yelling over the boards at the refs. And yep. sure, is it a little much sometimes? Certainly, but that's what the fans of Philadelphia want. They want someone fighting for them. They want to know that there's someone at the top of any sports organization here that's going to fight for them. And them knowing that the person at the top of the organization, Snyder was cared even more than they did. It gave people a reason to kind of relax a little bit and be like, it's okay. They'll, you know, there's a problem. He's going to take care of it. And you see that with any sports team in this city, it's not just the flyers. Uh, you see when, when you have, when you've got that strong ownership where they show how much they truly care about the team, the fans like give the trust to that ownership and say, I got, I know you've got this. I'm angry, but I know you are too. So, so we've got this. Yeah, it was a commitment to the identity of the city in a lot of ways is is what he brought. I mean, when my dad bought season tickets in the 80s, just probably early 80s, 83, and the seats that he got were Section R, and the first two seats were the last row in Section R. And right across the the, the stair hallway there was his box. And we loved it because we could see replays. They didn't have a jumbotron back then, right? It looked like a light bright hanging in the middle of the, if anyone remembers light bright, we're dating myself a little bit, but we could see replays on his TV. And that was like, oh, okay, what happened? Okay, we can, you could see the replays. And he would stand there and talk to people at intermissions and 
shake hands. And everybody felt like, even though he was a very unparalleled businessman and, and visionary, he had a way of just connecting with the people of this city and the fans. And, um, they felt it for sure. Um, let, let's talk about kind of his later years. I mean, he was involved in so many businesses starting. I remember going to the mall as a kid, like going to the Granite Rum Mall and there was a Spectrum store. <laughs> like, I mean, some of the things he did were so far ahead of the curve. Uh, but in his, in his later years, as he got into the 2000s, did anything change about him? So not necessarily. I mean, he, he the Flyers were always number one to him. That's for sure. I mean, no matter what business entity he had started or, you know, he bought and sold a lot of businesses, he started and closed a lot of businesses. The Flyers were always number one. I mean, in 96, you have uh, Comcast acquiring the team, uh, or at least the majority of the team. I think Ed uh, held 20% at that time, if my number's correct off the top of my head. Um, but Ed still was the managing partner of the team. He still ran it up until his death. And so he worked in conjunction with Comcast, with Brian Roberts, eventually with Dave Scott. Uh, they worked on expanding that business even greater than Ed could by himself. You know, he, they got into uh, sports media heavily, regional TV, you know, even after the prism years, you know, we had Comcast Sportsnet and that turned into what it is today with NBC Sports Philadelphia. Oh, and WIP um, you, for a while. All, absolutely. And so you've got all of these pieces of the business where the flyers, the spectrum, and eventually the center were all the core of that business, but he kept building businesses off of these uh, of these uh, of these cores. Like I said, the spokes of a wheel that supported the, the greater good of Comcast Spectacor. Mm -hmm. um, and so they've you know they've they've got a concessions part of it, they've got a merchandise part of it, they've got a ticketing part of it, an analytics part. They've they've so many pieces of this business. It's so much larger than just the Flyers, the Center. Uh, previously the Sixers before they sold them. They, he, he just kept building. He was an entrepreneur. He wanted to find the next best thing. He was never satisfied with just, oh, okay, this is a good business. Let's let it ride. He wanted to keep finding that next big thing to add to his empire. And it, and it wasn't about money. He, he really, I mean, at that point, he, he had a phrase that he used all the time. Money can't, money must be the reward. It can't be the reason. You had to be passionate about what you were going after. And if you were passionate about it and were good at it, the money would then follow, which of course, in his case, it did. Uh, and you can see that, for example, with the Sixers, you know, he, he agreed to be part of this conglomerate uh, when Comcast acquired all these teams in 96, and he was technically an owner of the Sixers. And after years, he, he tried so hard. He gave every resource imaginable to the Sixers, and, but he just didn't have the passion for it. He wanted so badly to love it, and he just didn't. And so, you know, eventually you see Comcast sells the Sixers because it wasn't something that he felt he could be passionate about. It didn't matter how much they were worth or it would be worth five, 10 years from then. He needed to be passionate about the businesses that he owned. You see this in the eighties. He nearly bought the Eagles in the eighties. He was basically signing a loan agreement away from owning the Eagles. And he just, he had a mental breakdown. He couldn't do it. He's like, you know what? I, I don't even like football that much. Why am I, why am I doing this? And yeah, there's a story the about him. He's, there's a story in the book that the, re, that the listeners can read about, you know, something from his past that that kind of played into that. But in the meantime, he could not push himself to make a business decision unless he was passionate about what he was doing. And I think that's such a crucial lesson to everybody, not just in sports, but everybody in their lives. Yeah, God, it, that, that's amazing. Uh, I love that you just kind of told everybody about that because that's like almost the most honorable thing you can do. It's honesty 
with what you do. You can't fake it when it comes to you can't fake it in Philadelphia, first of all. Because no, no. faking it, you know, we have a, a fake meter here in this city that if you're going to fake it, you they know that they're too savvy, the sports fans and these consumers and and all of that. And he never looked they, at them as consumers. Yeah, yeah. It's just it's a gut thing. And and he wasn't going to fake it for the profit to profit off of those fans that um, he was trying to serve. So, I mean, I mean. He, the guy wanted to win so bad um, in his later years as, you know, obviously he got ill and uh, you know, he was out in California and you know, the loss, I remember the day that he passed um, I was driving into work and I had done Fox 29 that morning because there was a game that night and I was 10 minutes out of the studio driving to Bala Kimwood and um, they called me back and said, Hey, can you come back in? Mr. Snyder just passed away. Um, what is the void? that he left and what's the legacy? So first off, I, I, that last chapter of the book, of course, follows his last years. And it's such an important chapter for, I think the people of Philadelphia that knew Ed or, or were just familiar with him. Um, you know, the last year of his life, the team and the family, understandably so, were very secretive about what was going on. You know, he was, he was a very prideful person. He didn't want to be in the media. He didn't want people writing about about cancer or how how he was feeling. He, he just wanted to be left out of the spotlight. So after he passed, there wasn't a lot known about that last year. Uh, and the family was so gracious about sharing their stories from from that those last few months. And the stories that came out were, were just tear-jerking and incredible about what he was fighting through. And, and it's really gut-wrenching. There's some quotes that he had said to people towards the end of his life that are just, you just feel it right in your heart. Um, and you know, it's, it's that passion. I'm not sure Philadelphia has ever seen a sports owner as passionate as Ed Snyder. And, and we come close, you know, you look at the people we've got now in Philadelphia, we've got some great sports teams going on right at this moment, but nothing matched that passion that Ed had. And you, you can't even try to match it. If you try, like you said, there's a fakeometer in Philadelphia. People know, uh, one guy had, it, it was close and that was Pat Croce and that's it. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Pat, Pat definitely had it in him too. Yep. Um, but you know, I think the key is nobody should ever try to be Ed Snyder. There's only one Ed Snyder. There's only one Pat Croce. There's only one Jeff Lurie. You know, people need to, any sports owner in Philadelphia, you sure we're missing that passion in, in the city, uh, to some extent, but you move on and you need, and someone else needs to take that place, uh, not to replace him, but to move on to the next step. Ed was so one of the things I loved the most about uh, Ed's story was even though he owned the Flyers, he never felt that they were his team. Um, no. And he always felt that it belonged to the city of Philadelphia and he was just a temporary steward until he passed. You know, he knew he was going to pass one day. He knew he wasn't going to own it forever. Uh, and, you know, I think that was the most important thing. And I think that's what Philadelphians could sense about him. He didn't treat the team like it's mine and I'm going to do whatever I want with it. He treated it like this is Philadelphia's team. In the 90s, when they were negotiating for, uh, for the uh, deal to build the center, you know, there were meetings in Camden and what are the Flyers going to move, et cetera. And deep down, you know, he played the political games you had to play. But deep down, he told everyone close to him, he's like, I can't move this team. It's not my team. It belongs to Philadelphia. Yeah. It belongs to trust. Yeah, exactly. And so even though he owned it, he didn't feel like he had the right to make a decision that would not benefit the city. And I think that's what fans felt about his passion is he cared so deeply about the city and they saw that in him. 
and that that certainly is something that is so hard to replicate uh, at any level. Um, but but I think there are people, there are tons of people of all the sports teams in this city. There there's people in leadership uh, of these organizations that care so deeply. Again, you're not going to match Ed Snyder, but you can still be passionate in your own way. Uh, that yep. shows the city of Philadelphia you care about them, and that's a it's a tough act to follow. Uh, people have failed really many is. times before to follow Ed Snyder in his life, uh, and so you know the, the city has its work cut out for itself when, when you lose a giant like that. Um, but I think there's lessons we can learn from his life, both good and bad. You know, the the, the story is not a whitewashing of his life. There's a lot of bad sides to Ed Snyder, but I mm-hmm. think the 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 story shows what we can learn from him, what we do want to follow, and what we don't want to follow in order to move forward in a positive way for the flyers and for the city. Yeah. And, you know, in today's landscape in our world today, it's, you know, owners like Ed Snyder for the most part are bygone era. It just sports has gotten so enormous. Last thing for you, Alan, um, how much did it hurt him to see the spectrum go down? So it hurt him a lot. And it's probably the reason it took so many years to take it down. It probably, based on its useful life as a building should have been taken down a few years earlier, but everyone was kind of afraid to go into his office and make the suggestion. Yeah. Everyone yeah. knew the, the trademark Snyder glare. They didn't want to get it. Um, he would regularly remount some employees if they brought a bad idea to him, if he thought it was not thought out. Um, but he also knew as an entrepreneur, you know, if I'm just keeping this building up, that's bringing in no revenue because I've got some nostalgia factor in it. He's like, that's not what an entrepreneur does. Yeah. And so, sure, it, it, it stuck around a little longer than it should have. But when, when I believe it was Peter Luca who came to him and said, look, we've got to do something at this point. The building is falling apart. It wasn't worth putting the money in to fix it because they didn't bring that much revenue in through the building. And he said, fine, we, then, we, then we have to take it down. You know, it, he didn't like having to take it down, but it would be irresponsible of him for the city of Philadelphia to leave a building up that, that should not have been there. And so that's why there's, there's a... The, the one of the last chapters of the book is titled a building falls but the memories remain and as trite yeah. as that is that's what it is you know the memories never leave us but holding a building up just because you liked the building for what it meant um he, he that didn't make sense to him as an entrepreneur he had to look for the next thing and philly live eventually called xfinity live that was the next best thing uh for him there you know comcast has discussions uh to build a gaming arena on that spot now you know there's yeah, there's so much going arena. on there yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, that's something Ed would have loved. He would have loved to see that, you know, he wasn't a gamer, of course, but he would have loved to see that next step of entrepreneurship. What's what's coming next that we can build? That was always what he wanted. Yeah. He had great vision and, and knowing what was going to be next. I wasn't a gamer either. And then I got into sim racing and now I'm a gamer at 50 years old. <laughs> I used to, I used to like give my, I'd be like, why are you watching people play video games on YouTube? Now I do it. I'm like, oh my God, what's going on? <laughs> it's a big uh, business. Rever- yeah. Oh my God. It's unbelievable. But um, yeah, I'm reverting in a lot of ways. Maybe that's a good thing. Um, Alan, where can people get the books? Anywhere books are sold. Um, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, your, lo- your local bookstore. Um, the Wells Fargo Center store should have it any day. So uh, if you go to a Flyers game, be sure to check out the team store there. Uh, but anywhere that you get your books. Uh, the book is The Last Sports Mogul. A biography on Ed Snyder from Alan Bass. This was great, man. I really appreciate it. I advise everybody to go get it. I'm going to get it just because I want to read, you know, the, the gut wrenching parts and and you know some of the the things he had to overcome. There's a lot. I imagine there's a ton of lessons in this book 
about getting knocked down. You know, life is full of no's and closed doors. And, you know, you just don't stop. You keep going and you push. And if you have passion, you'll get there. And uh, I think that that's going to be a big element of this. So, Alan, I really appreciate your time. Best of luck with the book. I hope everybody reads it. And thanks for doing this. Thanks, Jason. I appreciate you having me. Thanks to Alan Bass for taking the time to join us on this episode of Flyers Daily. Uh, We appreciate it very much. Go pick up the book as well. And everybody, thanks for listening. Flyers, Panthers tonight. We'll recap it tomorrow. So enjoy your hockey tonight, and we'll talk to you tomorrow on a brand new Flyers Daily.